You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome back again to The Natural Philosopher, and this is part two of my conversation with my good friend Claire Harvey. Welcome back to the program, Claire. Thanks, Mick. It's good to be here. Okay, so we, in the second half of last program, we really started to dig into female representation in politics. So we talked about Ruth uh, Ginsburg and uh, what's the quote, wherever decisions being made, women should be there or something along those lines. Um, Now you're running for local politics. I'm wondering if you you could spend a few moments talking about why it is you've decided to do that, particularly as a a Christian and dare I say a quote-unquote green Christian. Yes, and particularly in a COVID year. So who would do that when you're already exhausted from just the year that it's been and juggling remote uh, working and supervising kids who are doing remote learning? Um, That left me in a position where I had plenty of reasons not to do it, although interestingly the decision was made at a very small little birthday dinner I had at the end of June Um, because a friend who was at the tables, the one who sort of tapped me on the shoulder and really encouraged me strongly to run. And when I said, oh, maybe in four years time, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can pull it off. I think I had a day where I couldn't even get us out the door on time without tears from someone. And I just thought, who am I kidding? (laughs) I can't do this. I can't even get my kids out the door without tears. I can't get involved in local politics. Um, but she was at the table and it came up again and she sort of said, no, I really think 2020 is the year. And then I sort of almost put it to a vote and everyone said I should do it. And it turned out that the four friends, four or five friends, because I had a limit because we were coming out of restrictions, friends at the table were all local. So they were actually all constituents, not necessarily of my ward, but they're all locals. And they all sort of said, yes, you should. Maybe I'd had that second glass of wine that didn't help, but I said, fine, I'll do it then. But I didn't know that we were going back in, that we would be going back into lockdown. Uh, But I'd also decided that if I was going to campaign, I'd run with two others, one of us in each ward. And I think that's one of the only reasons I, or or avenues to do it because I hate self-promotion. To go around and spruik me is just so not in my nature. Whereas to run with two others and to what we've done is tie back into the Australia Remade vision, which I love. There's nine pillars. They did a couple of years of work surveying everyday Aussies. I think we we have a sense that we're a nation deeply divided where there's no agreement on substantive issues. But actually, they said, when you sit down and talk to people and let them dream and tell you about the world they'd love to live in, if it was possible, there's resonance there. They want to recognise their Indigenous people. They want to care for the planet. They want people to have meaningful work and recognise work that's paid and unpaid. They want women to have a voice. They want all members of society to be looked after and cared for. 
They want diversity to be respected. They want thrive, you know, thriving communities. Like there's these nine pillars. And actually most people resonate, particularly when you ask everyday Aussies and particularly when you ask people that don't usually get to have their voice heard. When you ask single parents, when you ask people who are homeless or struggling with issues of mental health or poverty or our indigenous peoples, they actually know what they want. Uh, and there's this clarity. And I said, well, instead of reinventing the wheel, why don't we just link back to these nine pillars? All the work's been done and it's been signed off by ACF and Uniting Church Taz and key individuals. You know, Tim Costello is number four on the list of people that have endorsed this. And he's going to be in our conversation next Sunday afternoon. Um, and we're campaigning on these uh, pillars uh, that he's spoken to and endorsed. So, again, that's another way that has helped me campaign because instead of it, me standing up saying, vote for me because I'm awesome. Um, you are. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I can say we've been captured by this vision and mm -hmm. I'm running, uh, you know, in this ward, but I have friends running in other wards, support us. And... Um, Calling it Frankston Remade was a little bit too close to the Australia Remade tag and that they've got to make sure that they're not political and not perceived as being political. Uh, so that's why we've gone with reimagining Frankston. So that's our whole thing. Sit down and imagine the kind of world that you'd want to find. And I think there's a degree of cynicism. People have given up. No, actually, I was going to say particularly at the level of local government, that's certainly the case in Frankston where we have had successive dysfunctional councils, including the police called in, accusations of bullying, a councillor suspended, a monitor appointed at great expense to sit in meetings and make sure our councillors behave. Like, it's been a bit of a circus. Um, so there's a level of cynicism that people go, you pay rates, they're going to do what they like anyway, it's ridiculous. I don't care. I don't vote. I don't even know. <laughs> you know, I'm amazed at how many people don't know what ward they live in, don't know who their councillors are, don't know who's restanding. Um, and in their, uh, their favour, there's some people that have had some negative publicity, but most people aren't even aware of that either. So they're probably going to get voted back in. So... <laughs> I'm wondering so if all it, the more reason to run, in a sense, yeah. and then to run as a female, realising that other women might not run. And I wrote a piece during the week because we are actually poised. Uh, we have a really high chance of having an all-male council, all nine, because the three current females are all stepping out, one of them profoundly traumatised by her experience. She was mm -hmm. in tears in the meeting on Monday. Um, two others not standing again. Um, and eight out of eight women out of 35, so less than a quarter. Um, yeah, it's not looking great. So it favours the current incumbents um, or returning. So we've got some councillors who have been there before and they're returning. So people will vote to go, oh, there's a familiar face. I recognise yeah. him. He was there once. It's like, <laughs> so it doesn't mean he's going to do a great job. What about character and competence? We've been talking about... I mean, particularly about climate change issues and uh, we touched upon last program, I guess the need for huge changes and systemic changes. And, you know, that might make me think, for example, of things like a price on carbon or, or the ceasing of uh, federal government subsidies on fossil fuels and a transition to renewables. What's the, the traction in local politics? What do you think you can achieve there that you couldn't at a state or federal level why why enter 
um, into local politics other than say somewhat cynically as um, your um, training wheels for going up where you might have more influence or is that a complete kind of misnomer? Oh, a lot, well, a lot of people actually do that. And um, I think that's actually part of our problem here that people are using local government as a stepping stone for bigger things. And their interest is actually not their constituency. Their interest is political leverage. Mm. Uh, and that's exactly part of the problem that um, we've had factions and it's about who's supporting who for mayor. Why do they want to be mayor? It might be the 85,000 plus dollar um, allowance that you get 85k for the year I think it's also the reputation they want to be mayor because then they're known and then when they run as a candidate for a state or federal election they've got a better chance of getting in again they're not really campaigning for the people they're campaigning for their own political career that's concerning um I don't know that I'm I wouldn't say I'm running for council uh on a climate change action platform um, because our council is actually quite good in that space. In the last year, they passed a motion that um, saw them declare a climate emergency. We've got a strong environment team. It doesn't always play out on the ground. I think uh, my concern is more about generally a lack of a progressive and hopeful rather than cynical view of things. Um, and really, to be honest, I'm running because people tapped me on the shoulder and said I should. <laughs> So, um, uh, for example, I think there are people at work in, for example, community development. They might have great uh, policies to address things like homelessness and they can't get them through. Um, so I don't know if we're ready to talk about the digs yet, but I guess that was a formative experience. We went to council with plans for a co eight dwelling co-housing community that would have ticked so many boxes if you look at a strategic plan. This is good for community good for connectedness, good for fighting things like loneliness and isolation. It's good for modeling uh, and showing as viable uh, different ways of living and being and commuting and relating. It adds diversity to our housing stock. It's a sustainable build with solar panels, rammed earth. It facilitates sharing and a resourcefulness and it's right in the heart of town. Like who's not to want to do this and to have it there? Um, we thought this would be a sort of showcase flagship kind of development for the council and they unanimously opposed it. Now, one younger councillor said, look, I think you're gutsy. She said that and then voted against it. Now, and part of the frustration there was the planners themselves, we'd worked with them to develop plans that were put up with the recommendation of the planning department for approval. But because of the height um, and the size of it, it had to go to council. But they could have just said, we're taking our planners' advice and approved it, but they listened to the chorus of a few very loud, noisy neighbours, um, and they said, no, it's, um, there's visual bulk, um, we've got some questions about car parking. We included 17 bicycle spots and one car park per dwelling, and that wasn't enough. They still wanted to force us to do the standard thing that if it's three bedrooms, you need two. Suddenly you've got a block that's full of driveways, full of car parks. The whole project becomes um, much less viable. Um, and that's where even if they had some concerns, it's like we met with them, we gave them opportunity to consult, we presented a video and the cynicism that saw us as hard-nosed developers, that we were doing something uh, speculative to turn a quick profit, um, one of the candidates that is running in my ward for re-election, um, he hasn't been 
uh, on council currently. He has in the past. So when, when our plans went up, he said, I, I struggle to understand how you think you're going to force people to share things. <laughs> and it's like, this is eight dwellings. Uh, people who don't want to live differently, I can tell you now, will not buy into this. Yeah. It's not for everyone. And we don't have enough for everyone. This is for the few people that have decided they want to do things differently for one of a number of reasons. You know, our, our core sort of values are community, sustainability, generosity. So you can live more simply, so you can give more of yourself, of your time, of your resources. Uh, and then if we were sort of labeling it as a very Christian thing, um, we would call it probably discipleship, but we've called or humility, but we've called it learning. There's always more we can learn about our impact on the planet, about our neighbors, about what it looks like to live in community, about our own wounds and dysfunctions and what triggers us and why we're difficult to have as a neighbor, you know, that posture of um, growing. And there's a book called Happily Ever Aftering in Co-housing. And one of the lines in that book says, uh, co-housing communities are great ways, uh, present great ways for adults to keep growing up. You know, we get to 18 and we think we're adults and all the growing is done. And it's like, that is rubbish. Particularly, physically, we might have matured. What our prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing till it's what? Till we're 24, 25. Yeah. Um, but emotionally, spiritually mature, um, you know, um, in terms of our maturity and even psychologically, like we've got to keep growing. We've got to keep learning about ourselves and what it, what it takes uh, to be a good neighbour. Um, so we would have thought it ticked all the boxes. The, uh, someone else who's restanding, who didn't get voted back in last time, but is trying again, she looked at our plans and said, all I see is that you're trying to build rooming houses, but under another name. Yeah. You know, you're trying to build some accommodation and you'll squeeze poor people in and you'll exploit them. It's like, do you not understand? Like, this is where I'm going to live and raise my kids. You, you don't, build rooming houses and put expensive rammed earth walls in and <laughs> like plan shared veggie gardens and 17 bicycle pop parks and solar park, you know, like again, the level of um, cynicism and the failure to connect. And I think what was gut wrenching actually was this was a really hard journey for us. All the delays, like we're paying thousands of dollars a month just to hold this land. And we're now five years in, like the expense of it um, and to not actually have the encouragement and support of council. And they cynically had no other category for us than um, speculative developers. I'm like, you should have championed this. You just made it hard. And people in Frankston have had developments of their own that they've wanted to do and just walked away because it sucked the life out of them and it's been too hard. I go, that's, surely that's one of the roles of council to champion people that are living the kind of life or doing the kind of things you want to see more of in your community because it is good for people and good for the planet. Well, you leave me with, a, or leave us with a couple of different directions to take, which we will in the second half of the program.
Well, welcome back to the program. And we've been having a robust discussion about the nature of local politics and our chat has kind of bled into discussion about the DIGS project, which uh, we can fill in some of the details. But I'd like to, before we get on to that, just touch this word cynicism has come up a heck of a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know about, it sounds like your experience of local politicians hasn't been great. I heard, um, oh, the name's gone right out of my head. There's uh, a woman who, all the names have gone right out of my head. Um, there's a book with Utopia in the title by a Sydney um, politician who works alongside the um, mayor, whose name has also gone out of my head. I just can't um, uh, grasp hold of that. But I was really impressed by her freshness and her set of ideas. And look, every time I've met politicians, I've been somewhat impressed by them, you know, that they're articulate and intelligent and they come across at least as being not so cynical, but then, you know, recently, for example, however you want to take sides on this issue, I heard that my local Labor member has, although I've heard him speak face-to-face -face upon his, his interest in renewable energy and on solid climate change policy, publicly talk about uh, getting behind this transitional idea of natural gas and whatnot. So, you know, you, on the one hand, you hear people espousing really fresh and interesting ideas and be imaginative about local politics. And then you'll, you'll hear something else that's like, oh, did you just done a backflip? So I guess what I'm wanting to get at is that how, what do you think for you as a Christian you bring to local politics that might help unseat or undo or uh, undermine the cynicism to transform uh, the way in which it, it seems I've heard you say that it, basically to use an old analogy for any, someone who only has a hammer or they, they see everything as a nail and they seem to have seen your idea as a nail. It's a quick buck thing. What can you do about that to make the road easier for people like yourself in the future to do things that are radical and transformative and community based? Uh, how can you change the process, you know, particularly bringing your faith to politics? That question makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well, we actually tried to pull a pin on the digs development a bit over a year ago, just out of our exhaustion. Um, and some of the key people that had, we'd had all but one pretty much allocated and had people on the journey. And then some changes to plans and increasing costs just meant that everyone walked away. And it was back uh, with the original sort of founders of the idea. And we just went, uh, if we wanted to pull a pin, now's the time to do it because there's no one on the journey with, with us. You know, you can't get people buying into your vision and then pull a pin. But we were back at the, it felt emotionally, relationally back at the start. And yet with the um, maybe wind taken out of our sails. So we did try to sell and it didn't really happen. Then we got an offer over summer that fell through and then COVID. So it's, and then you sort of think, oh, what a crazy time to encourage people to take a financial and social, relational, psychological risk, but then also go, there's people coming out of this who have actually got a much clearer sense of their, their, the vision that they have for their own life because COVID stripped away uh, some of the superficialities and the distractions, the things we thought we wanted. You know, even just looking in my wardrobe and putting on the same clothes going, there's a whole lot of clothes that I don't wear because you only wear them because you go out because you see people and you just, you realise so many of the, the things that drive us, we think it's about the thing, but it's about the people, the relationship. And we've, that's what we've lost. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if people are going to come back around to realizing the importance of community, that it's people that matter, not things. Um, 
the bushfires, I guess, are lost a little bit in our consciousness because of COVID, but we started off the year being really slapped in the face with air we couldn't breathe, even though the fires were far off. I mean, we could talk about the species loss. It's just devastating. Um, but we sort of lost the, the poignancy of that, I think, because COVID has overshadowed it, but still serious things. So um, we'd love actually to get that development up. You sort of talk about um, being a sign of hope. Getting that development up might be a real encouragement. It's going to provide jobs and activity when other things are slowing down, but hopefully it'll give people things to look at. I mean, what makes these developments affordable is generally people find cheap land far away in the country. You know, they move out and they do it regionally. And part of our argument was that doesn't work because it's not, you can't replicate that. You can't ask every city person to move to the country and pick up some kind of Amish lifestyle. Like that's just not 21st century kind of style living. But I also go and biblically like the new Jerusalem's a city and maybe we need to embrace some of that to go. Cities are not necessarily bad, but we can make them better. Mm. Uh, so there's a sense of going we wanted to prove and we're yet to do so but we wanted to prove or demonstrate as a sign probably more than as a solution that you can do this in an urban environment it can work without you having to go and leave everything and everyone you know to set up in the country and do the sort of Amish hillbilly off-grid kind of thing there's got to be some kind of medium intermediate sort of that was part of it. And in terms of politics, um, we're taking a risk. Uh, and I wrote a little blog post about this yesterday because people, most people have offered to help who like the idea of our campaign. They said, well, letterbox drop for you. And we're like, thanks, but we're actually just not wanting to generate the paper waste and there's restrictions in that there's the two hours and there's the five Ks and it's complicated and even the cost of print and the graphic design and, and then it's fixed and you can't change it once it's done and timelines. And again, I'm just weary from this whole COVID thing, um, but we just didn't want the waste. And I'm just not the kind of person that wants my face on signs either. So we're taking, we're taking a risk by going low waste um, and sort of saying, this is integrity for us. Like we actually stand by our values and even the way we campaign, we want to reflect who we are. And there's a risk that people won't know about us because they haven't seen my face or our faces plastered all over town. Um, I'm hoping that some people will actually read the 300 words in their candidate statement. Um, it shouldn't be about your photo. Some people just number them by the, who do they like the look of, which is a terrible way to run democracies, surely. Um, but sincerity, truthfulness, honesty, transparency, calling a spade a spade. I don't know, so many people end up in politics and apparently they started off with all the right aims and then get twisted and corrupted and cynical. Um, I like to believe there's a, a different way. One of our um, little Zoom meetings, so on Monday nights as a campaign team, we get together and we've had interesting people drop in, like David Wilson, who was on the City of Melbourne Council with John So when John So was Mel uh, mayor. He's popped in for a chat and an encouraging talk with us. Um, having been pretty inspired by the sort of 70s Jesus people kind of movement. Um, so he's been engaged in that earthy roll up your sleeves and get involved kind of non-dualistic Christianity. But we also had someone called Dennis Ginevan pop in and he was really instrumental in assisting Kathy McGowan with her campaign for Indi. 
And her campaign slogan, um, so this was against um, Mirabella, the Liberal Oh, yes. Uh, Mirabella. Um, yeah. And so for her to win as an independent, that was quite remarkable. But that was kitchen table conversation. So it was actually saying to people, why don't you decide to care? Why don't you believe that you can make a difference? Why don't we have a conversation about this? Mobilised an army of people to have conversations around kitchen tables and cups of tea. And her key line was, uh, her sort of campaign philosophy was, show up and be nice. Or be kind, I think. Nice is terrible. Show up and be kind. Um, does it have to be that hard? And that's, I think, what we've actually lacked, that we have our own candidates and anyone who wants to question this can go online now and watch reruns of live council meetings because COVID's meant it's all been streamed online. Um, the infighting and the bullying and the cutting each other down, like these are our civic leaders. These are, should be, I believe, moral leaders and they can't be nice to each other. Yeah. Um, so part of it is can we lift... Can we lift the bar a bit? Um, I think, too, councillors do sit in meetings and make policy decisions um, and they make planning uh, decisions in light of um, regulations and res code and all the rest. But I think they also probably are undervalued as advocates. We're supposed to advocate at, with state and federal government for funding, for projects. We're supposed to work collaboratively. And you think if a council can't function as a group, mm. how on earth is it going to advocate with a united voice for anything if you can't even agree? And whether or not it's female voices or more enlightened, highly evolved people, but to be able to collaborate and to demonstrate to your constituents the mode of being that you would hope everyone aspires to in the world, I, I think we've underestimated the role that councillors could play as civic leaders, regardless of, in a sense, their role pouring through. So the agenda, Mick, for last week's meeting was nine over 900 pages. Good That's Lord. almost two reams of paper if you print it. It's ridiculous for one meeting. And there's a sense that that's what councillors do. They make decisions about, you know, people appealing. Someone's put a colour bond fence in and it doesn't meet the overlay because this is supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to have bio links and this and that. There is that detail, neighbours not getting along and trips to VCAT. But what about calling people again to believe in a better and bigger vision? Um, I think that's lost, but maybe that's also lo local government. We're actually expecting too much of some of our local locally elected um, councillors. Sometimes I go to vote or in the past I've gone to vote and some of them can't string a sentence together and that's deeply concerning. Uh, it's interesting. I've just um, a couple of things happening as, uh, as we talk. Firstly, my brain failure earlier. The book I was trying to get onto is Jess Scully's Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas right. for a Fairer World. Uh, and it's, I think I recommended that to you because yeah. it, she was so fresh and engaged and so on and echoing so much of what you're saying. And the thing that's, that's really struck me thinking about my own to, to shift slightly workplace experiences, I'm a manager, but when you look at the, um, because it's, you've got all these selection criteria, et cetera, it's not just management skills that you require to, to do all the things I hear you talking about, but, there's a whole separate category for leadership and leadership looks very different because it's as much about who you are and how you are that person than mm. it is um, 
the things that you can do. And so what I hear you saying is you bring to this Christian character and virtues and, and virtue is a, an expression that you don't hear much about in the public sphere. And it's something that you might tend to scoff at, but it's really, I think what you're driving at in that transformative presence. And if we were to tie it into the digs and we've got only a few minutes to get a bit more into that is you're talking what I understand is that the digs is embodying Christian principles and virtues in community. And you're talking about doing exactly the same thing in the political sphere um, mm. where it's a mixed community of, of people with all faiths and none um, for the greater good. And interestingly, most people who uh, engage with local candidates, you know, I, I've been sent surveys. So Frankston community notice board, we've got a, a lack of a strong local media presence. No one's getting local papers at the moment, but Frankston Community Notice Board is just by, run by a woman who cares, who set that up, but she now has over 32,000 followers. So the council actually seeks her out when they want to get word out because she's got a bigger draw. Wow. Um, but the questions we're being asked include things like, well, what, what do you think about dogs in the central activities district? Like people want to be able to go to a cafe and take their furry friend. And then other people are like, I don't want to wade through dog shit when I go for brunch with a friend <laughs> or, or have my toddler growled at while we're trying to, yeah. you know, have a nice day out. So it's, it's deeply divisive. You know, uh, someone's got a plan to redevelop or renovate the block of toilets at the bottom, bottom of Oliver's Hill. What's your position? And there's a lot of what's your position? What's your stance? Tell me about your policy. Um, and that's where that's not unimportant because your policy positions will ha give people an indication of what you stand for and what you value. And ultimately your policy decisions are going to be important, but coming back to who you are, what do you stand for? Can we trust you? Um, and part of your role when you're there, you are forced to, and you, I think basically your code of conduct says you've got to walk in the room, put down your personal agendas and take up your heart that says, I'm here to represent other people and listen to their voices. So again, if you get strong-willed, politically motivated narcissists with a strong political agenda, they're set up to fail as local candidates because they're unable to put their personal agendas aside because of why they're there. It's not what's driving them. So I wonder if the system's almost a bit broken. Even the attention-seeking stuff. I hate campaigning. And you go, who's going to be best at this? your narcissists that are smooth. Like I was listening to a podcast the other day and said, narcissists, are, uh, you know, they, they get more dates. Uh, they get married more easily. They get more jobs because they're really good at turning on the charm. They are happy to get attention. They are happy to talk themselves up and people find it the, the confidence refreshing. They're like, wow, this person's strong. It, you know, people are drawn in, but the podcast also went on to say, yeah, but these people are bad at keeping jobs and at making relationships work because it comes undone really fast. But I, it made me reflect on our political system. It says, who does well in campaigning? The narcissists, unfortunately, because they love it. They love the attention. Mm. And one of the things you know, I found, I mean, we probably talked about this when we, we wrote the book, many, many moons ago now as it stands is that it's invariable. If you do something and you care about it, then you're forced to promote it. Uh, and I think probably to sum up some of the things you've been talking about, if it's the belief in the idea or indeed it's the, the belief in or faith in God. And, and that's in a sense what you're trying to get across. How do we make for a better world? 
um, which we understand to be God's world, then you have to be out there. You have to be communicating. Um, you're embodying and hopefully it can be seen that you're not just selling, not just selling a product. So, you know, I've got this podcast. I've, I've got people I want to talk to and ideas I want to share. So I have to get it out there and hashtag and do all these things. Um, but at the end of the day, to use a cliche, you, you're wanting to promote something more than a product. Uh, it's it's yeah. a set of valuable ideas or, or in fact more, more than ideas. So it's just something that you're forced into. Well, I, I wish you luck. Uh, and <laughs> you know, particularly if you're successful, but even if you're not, uh, it would be interesting to have you back at some point to talk about the experience. And certainly we haven't had much time really to, to dig into the digs, although you did touch upon it um, as that project goes along. And if it's successful then to hear more about uh, for the, for us introverts, the terrors of shared living and, and what it might mean um, just to kind of finish up. It was interesting. I spoke just recently on a, um, uh, a broadcast to London and, and a bunch of Londoners. And while my ideas were fairly kind of high level, when we got down to it, we we're talking about um, recycling and all those kind of issues that, you know, you'd be talking about local council. But one of the things that we hit upon was the idea that consumerism had driven us to think, oh, well, it's cheap enough to own something, each of us, uh, and how community living and having strong community links may, might mean that you don't all have to, in your street, own a, a mower or so on. So I'm really keen to for us to explore another time what the digs might look like and how genuine community living doesn't mean necessarily being in each other's pockets all the time, but sharing the things that you need to share, community resources, et cetera, et cetera. But... Once more, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to chat Thanks. with you. It, it always is, uh, but also for the benefit of others. So hopefully people found this conversation helpful. I certainly did. So thank you. Thanks, Mick. It's been great. Thanks for listening, everyone, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.